Karina's dad is a banjo player. Karina's first instrument was banjo. She loves banjo, and the more the merrier. You gotta love banjo for it. <laughs> Some of it's a little hairy, but their playing is amazing. You know, they don't, they're not always matching up, you know, but it goes ticka 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 a lot, and it's great. <laughs> I just love it. Greetings, everyone. Keith Billick here. Welcome to the show. Glad you could join me. It's a heavy news day here at the Picky Fingers podcast, and unfortunately, it's a heavy-hearted news day. Just before I hit record here to to record this intro, uh, I learned of the passing of Sonny Osborne, who was obviously a giant in our industry and influenced so many players, and I imagine a lot of you probably knew him uh, personally or were at least uh, touched by his music. And so I offer my condolences, and and I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news if some of you are just hearing this for the first time. But uh, I didn't want to let such a pivotal uh, moment pass by and and not mention it. So, of course, we know that this happens uh, to everyone eventually, but we can be thankful that we have a lot of great music that he left us to remember him by. R.I.P. Chief. In more uplifting news, I have a couple cool gigs. Remember those? Uh, Coming up, uh, Daniel Patrick, my good friend who runs the Mandolins and Beer podcast, he has a Tom Petty bluegrass tribute band where he plays down in South Carolina. They are bringing the show up to Michigan, and I will be their banjo player for this leg of their journey. So there are two Michigan shows to let you know about if you are in Central or Southeast Michigan. You can go see the Tom Petty Bluegrass Tribute on Saturday, November 12th at the Bay City State Theater, or the following day, Saturday the 13th, at the Otis Supply uh, venue in Ferndale. That's definitely going to be a lot of fun, and for that Otis Supply show, I actually have a new group of musicians that I will be performing with to open the show, and I expect you'll be hearing more about that. I'm trying to get uh, get back out there and, and do more of the performing thing, too. The other news is that tomorrow is the day, and of course, I don't know when you're listening to this. It could be years from now, but if you happen to be listening to this before October 26th, 2021, you are hearing it in time to join me for the VIP Lounge video meetup. That's where you can join myself and a bunch of other banjo playing listeners uh, for for an hour to, to chat about banjos, to demonstrate what you're working on. And all that's going down tomorrow, October 26th at 9 p.m. Eastern time. And the way you get invited to this VIP lounge is you have to go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and become a supporter of the show. And I always make sure to thank one special supporter uh, for each episode. And today's supporter of the show is Greg Poroban. Greg lives in the Philly suburbs and he's a high school science teacher. So he's doing good work there. He's been working playing his brand new Cedar Mountain banjo and taking classes with Evie Layden through Peghead Nation. So little plug for Peghead Nation, one of the show's sponsors there. So Greg obviously knows what's up. He's he's taking good classes with a great teacher, and he's supporting the show. So thank you so much, Greg. For uh, those of you who missed it, go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Sign up to be a supporter yourself. I really, really appreciate it, and it helps a lot. 
Don't forget you can also contact the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com or head over to banjopodcast.com to check out the full list of episodes and that's how you can get a hold of some very, very cool Picky Fingers merch like t-shirts and stickers. Today's featured guest is Jeremy Stevens of the band High Fidelity. Jeremy's a fantastic banjo player. He just came out with a solo album. We're going to talk about all those things, but probably the coolest part is that High Fidelity is known for their twin banjos. And I was so interested in this that I actually had, I brought my banjo to this interview and I had Jeremy go through and tell me how they craft the twin banjo parts and you'll even hear a bit of Jeremy and I playing twin banjos in this episode so that was a very cool moment that I don't get to do too often so thank you Jeremy for being such a gracious guest and teaching me all about your twin banjo tricks. I should also mention this was recorded a couple months back outdoors at the Milan Bluegrass Festival up here in Michigan so if you hear any random tractor sounds or or general outdoorsy festival sounds that's that's what's going on there but we found a good out of the way shade tree perfect for sitting under doing some podcast interviews and picking some banjers in fact i might rename this podcast the picky fingers banjer podcast because after hearing jeremy talk for a while that's what he calls it and it it just makes me want to say it like that too and aside from that i think you will all certainly take away jeremy's deep appreciation for the roots of bluegrass and country music and that comes through in this interview and comes through in his playing so enjoy this interview i had with jeremy stevens Jeremy Stevens. I'm originally from Danville, Virginia. That's uh, South Side, Virginia, they call it, sort of the cotton mill uh, area of the country. So that area, folks came from the mountains, uh, much like the northern cities up here in the north. Mm-hmm. You know, they came from the mountains, and those folks from the mountains brought their music there. And that's kind of how, um, not to say there wasn't that type of music already there because it is in the south and there were those but uh, there were a lot of influence that came from the mountains and such in my area so uh, yeah pretty rich history in, in country and bluegrass music where i'm from and and did you grow up with that musical family or so anything like that my my family um was was not really connected to to bluegrass or anything like that it was church music and and such and if you ask my mom you know I've asked her, like, what what you, kind of music do you even like, Mom? And she said, well, whatever's on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> P- pretty passive kind of listener. Right, yeah. yes. And uh, my dad, always he, he likes the Rolling Stones, you know. That's right. kind of his main thing. He always had me trying to learn these Keith Richards licks and stuff, oh, cool. you know. So. <laughs> well, he played a five-string guitar, so maybe you, oh, yeah. you did adopt some of that. <laughs> there you go. I, I think I can still play Love in Vain. I remember that enough. But, um, yeah, so... 
Uh, interestingly for me, my interest in, in the banjo and bluegrass music and country music or whatever as a whole came from my babysitters when I was very young. That's where I first heard the music. My mom was a school teacher. Dad was in real estate. So mom kept me for a year at home, and then she went back to work yeah. as a teacher. So at that time, I started staying with a sitter. They had several other kids and all there. And um, her husband worked at the mills. And he worked third shift, so he'd get off uh, work about 11 o'clock or so. In the, I mean, he'd get off at 7, sleep a few hours, he'd get up about 11 or so. Okay. And then that's about when the kids were going down for the naps. Well, I never took naps as a kid. <laughs> and uh, so he, um, I would just kind of lay there, you know, with my eyes open. And he'd come in there, he knew that, and he'd come, he'd come get me and take me down to his pack barn where he, he went to flea markets and stuff like that and bought everything you can imagine, cast iron skillets. Here I am, I'm selling cast yeah, iron on that. stage, you know. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't uh, tell if you were serious or not. Oh, yeah. Serious. You really have it? I could, yeah, well, not anymore. I sold it. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. I should have brought several with me, but um, anyway, I, that's one of my interests. But um, yeah, so he would. He bought records and all kinds of things. So he'd take me down there and he'd be organizing the stuff he bought at the flea market the weekend before or whatever, and he would play records for me. Mm -hmm. And he had 78s and LPs and just whatever kind of stuff he grabbed, you know. Yeah. So I heard folks like Riley Puckett and 50s country artists and maybe Charlie Poole and, you know, people like that. Okay. Uh, that's sort of the first stuff I, I guess I really heard. And then mom and dad realized that I had this interest and they didn't really know anything about the music, but they tried to get me in front of that type of music since I was showing interest in it. Uh -huh. So they started taking me to like Ferrum Folklife Festival and, and things like that. And they would try to buy recordings that they thought I would like. And so mom and dad have always been extremely supportive down through the years. And uh, so that's sort of the beginnings. For when me. did that turn into you playing an instrument? And what was it about the, the banjo that really caught your ear and yeah. made you choose that? So uh, my dad had a fiddle. He never really learned to, to play it. He did a little bit after I started, but I thought, well, I want to learn that. Mm -hmm. So when I was four or five, I started taking fiddle lessons. And very soon after that, um, I got interested in the banjo. A lady that worked for my dad, she and her husband were bluegrass fans. And I remember I was in kindergarten. It was right before the last day of um, Christmas break, before Christmas break, rather. And uh, she drove a school bus. She came in and handed me this little little box that was wrapped in Christmas wrapping. And all the kids went nuts, you know, because somebody brought me a present and nobody else had one. Okay. Anyway, it was a tape that she had made of um, one side was uh, a Raymond Fairchild album. Okay. And the other side was uh, this record of some local guys, Willie and Clinton Gregory, you know, which Clinton became a country star in the 90s, played the Opry some and all, but he was from where I'm from. And uh, it was so him and his daddy doing like twin fiddle stuff and all. Yeah. And the banjo player on there is a guy named Troy Brammer, who yeah. has become a profound influencer in my life. Uh, he's still living in, in, in his 80s, almost 90 now. Actually, he may be because he was born in '32, so I don't remember when his I've birthday is. I've not heard of him. Is he on recordings or anything like that? Yeah, so he was a regional guy. Um, Troy actually, uh, he had a band with his brother in the late '40s and '50s. They made a '78 uh, back then for Mutual Records, and Troy was really 
uh, he's an innovator in that time. Uh-huh. There's um, a lacquer disc recording from like 1951 of him and his brother and their band, uh, the Brammer Brothers and the Virginia Partners. There's been a couple of reissues that some of their songs have showed up okay. on. Um, and uh, But this acetate shows off um, his single string playing in 1951. So they're doing Carroll County Blues, and he's going. His break is. Well. And then the fiddle comes back in. Okay. So we're like. 1951. I mean, uh-huh. the dates on the record. I mean, lacquer discs. That was the thing then. When you went to the radio station, that they they didn't give you a real tape. You know, you got a lacquer disc if you. And they were playing on WPAQ at the time in Mount Airy, North Carolina. And this was just. Uh, I don't know what they cut it for, but um, it was just uh, two songs on the backside of this record. And here he is just wailing on this single string stuff. And it's like I asked him, it's like. <laughs> Where did you come up to do that? He said, well, I was trying to play what the fiddle played. And um, I, that's the only way, you know. So he that, probably hadn't heard Don Reno. Yeah, and Don wasn't, at that time, Don was just, you know, he wasn't really doing anything outside. I mean, I think in 51, he cut, uh, no, 52, he cut, using my Bible for a roadmap, which goes... You know... But that's about the most, you know, just some double stops like that. But crazy single string stuff wasn't really in Don's repertoire, at least on record, until much later. Okay. And and remind me of the name of this fellow that you're you're referring to here. Troy Brammer. Troy. So even for him, for Troy to have had an already developed style by 1951, mm-hmm. he would have been working on that for years yeah. by that point. Yep. And he talked that's really about, interesting. He talked about you know playing that way when he was much younger too, you know, he and he and his brother played together and his brother played fiddle. And he said, I was, I just tried to play the fiddle, the notes to the fiddle tunes. You know? So did you learn directly from him or was it more just, uh, from yeah, being so, around and having this tape that was made for you? Um, so that, that tape of course was recordings that were done in the eighties, I think with okay. Willie and Clinton, Clinton Gregory. And that sort of lit a fire under me. Um, I guess, backtracking a little bit uh there's a recording of me playing at some beauty pageant in my hometown <laughs> i was when our kid had where does the kid that plays the fiddle and the banjo get featured oh we put him in between the <laughs> the uh, uh the girls in the beauty pageant or whatever uh, so i did a few of those but i, I remember they asked me on stage there's a video of it mom and dad had so why did why did you want to play the banjo um Cause I like the sound of it. <laughs> so that's the only thing I, I could think of at that time was I like the sound of it. Still love the sound of it, of course. Yeah. And um, but yeah, the question was about taking lessons and that sort of thing, and from Troy, you know, I, I did for a time, but I took lessons 
to start with from the guy that was teaching me fiddle. His name was Ken Bentley. He was a great banjo player as well, very much in the um, Scruggs type of style. And that's really kind of what I was playing at that time, uh, though I'd heard some of this other stuff, but I just didn't know, you know, it was just all banjo playing to me. Right. Um, so at that point, you didn't necessarily make a distinction in your head between Troy's style and Earl Scruggs' style. It was just all all new, so you were just yeah, you just thought it was all part of right. playing the banjo. And I didn't know who I didn't know who Troy Brammer was. I just had this tape, and yeah. it said Willie Gregory or something on it, and the other side said Raymond Fairchild. And yeah. I thought, well, maybe Raymond Fairchild is the banjo player on the. You know, on other the side, other side. Other side. Yeah. yeah. You're just and a kid I didn't trying know. to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. and I, it was years later I figured out that Troy, who's been a major influencer on me, he was on the first tape I had. And it's like I had no How idea. Crazy. I had no idea. You know, yeah. I met him in just a few years after that, I guess in ninety two, maybe something like ninety three at Galax. I was leaving with my mom and dad, the Galax Fiddlers Convention, and I heard this guy. I heard somebody play in Home Sweet Home, uh-huh. a way I'd never heard it. I went over there and he was playing it. I can't really do it on this banjo, but he was playing it in D and he was pulling the strings up here without okay. without the cams, you know. And um, I was just like, wow. And mom and dad took a picture of me at the motel that night. And I was doing this. Working the, on it. I was trying to do it, you know. <laughs> I had medium gauge strings. And the, <laughs> oh, man. I couldn't pull them. You know, he used, Troy used Vega lights. And, uh, That's hurting my fingertips just yeah. thinking about <laughs> Right, doing and I had just some little cheap banjo, too, you know. So it was. It sounds like even for not having a musical family, you had a lot of really supportive people Absolutely. around you to, to encourage all that. Yes. I was adopted, so... I never knew exactly where the music came from. Uh, mm-hmm. I was adopted, you know, weeks old, so I, you know, I only know my family, you know. But uh, but mom and dad just tried to support me every way they possibly can. That's so, so great. So a- as we both know, you know, Earl, Earl Scruggs is sort of the dominant influence for mm-hmm. for banjo players, but you've kind of jumped both feet into this slightly alternate. Uh, reality here. So, I mean, I guess you already answered what drew you to that style. It was because of those early influences. Mm -hmm. Um, But for listeners who maybe don't know what to listen for in distinguishing between like a Reno style and a Scruggs style, how would you explain that or even maybe demonstrate the difference in uh, why why we're making that distinction? Yeah. So um, to me, this is going to sound weird. Uh, To me, Don's style is sort of based in an older style of banjo playing because Don Reno's playing is like pretty much Snuffy Jenkins, you know, um, and if if people think of Don Reno, all that sort of thing. I'm missing notes today. I don't know why I have struggled with that on stage, but, um, you know, so that's kind of what Don's known for, but the basis of Don's style is a forward roll only. And it's very, you know, and Earl had forward, backward roll, alternating roll, all this sort of thing. Don didn't really have that. Snuffy Jenkins um, just played pretty much forward roll, and, and that's who Don learned from, and you hear it in his playing. Um, I was trying to think there's a recording of Snuffy Jenkins on this record called Carolina Bluegrass. They were trying to capitalize on bluegrass, I guess, in the 60s, because uh, obviously Snuffy was doing this earlier. Um, but they do Watermelon on the Vine, and Snuffy's break is... Thank you. 
that, something like that. That's like almost just like Don would play it. Like Don would be. but it's all the forward roll type of thing. And to me, like Earl Scruggs is just this more syncopated or type of thing or making the melody, um, making the roll fit the melody, whereas Don would often make the, uh, the melody, melody fit, fit the, the roll. roll. Interesting. And that's kind of uh, a big difference between the two. And Don, you know, he, he developed some of that later on. You know, Don started later on going, you know, as opposed to... You know, yeah, something like that. Back right, yeah. right. Uh, but that he didn't. Don really didn't get into that until the like late fifties, early sixties. You know, but of course, the the obvious thing with Don Reno versus Earl Scruggs is Earl stayed with the role, and Don developed this stuff that he got from electric guitar or jazz, and got started doing these tunes like Limehouse Blues and, uh, yeah. and things like that. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a specific song that I think features a lot of great Reno style playing. And I don't, I don't think this comes from Don Reno. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Is that one that you guys do called I'm Happy to Know? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I was watching the, that Station In video that, that you guys have up mm-hmm. from a, a few months ago. And I just loved the, the backup playing and the solo you played on that. And it's just a, a really cool change from if, if we're accustomed to hearing the Scruggs style approach. It's, it right. really is like a whole different vocabulary. Can you maybe break down a few of the a few of the things that you're doing in that song, or maybe like a typical backup? Yeah, pattern? sure. So, Do, does uh, that come from Don Reno? No. I, okay, it, I didn't think so. It comes from the McCormick brothers, actually. Okay. Haskell McCormick. He's All the right. you know the banjo player. He, when he was 15, he filled in for Earl. You know, with when Earl was out for a time. And uh, Karina, my wife and I, we've been friends with Haskell for quite a while. He's a great guy. But yeah, that was a song they recorded in the 50s. And when we recorded with High Fidelity um, on our first album, uh, Kurt Stevenson, he's sort of our main banjo player on the records, and I play the guitar. And on a lot of the live shows, I do a lot of the touring, and he's not able to tour as much. So I play the banjo. And some of the things I try to play just like the record, and some of the things I just sort of do what I want to do on... This is one of the ones I do what I want to do. On. Okay. <laughs> and I, so I try to think. Um, so Kurt takes uh, apparently a, a different approach to you this. You know, we're both Reno players, but Kurt is very versed in the the flipping forward and backward roll thing with okay. the Earl Scruggs, and he kind of integrates it all, and he's a phenomenal banjo yeah, player. Yeah. Kurt's amazing, and um, I've learned a lot of that from him, actually. And I think probably one of his influences with a lot of that is, is Charlie Cushman. Oh, uh, he, he's yeah. He's friends with Charlie, and, and I think he learned a lot of that from Charlie, Yeah, too. someone who can really do it all. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm trying to think my break. I know one of the breaks, I, I kick it off sort of like Kurt did with that backward roll thing, kind yeah. of the Earl type of thing. Uh, but the, the Reno type breaks you were talking about, I think after the fiddle... This, Do that, and sometimes I go. Boy, 
it's sticky out here today. I'm right. missing, missing way more notes than I'm actually playing. <laughs> I want to focus a little bit on those triplet runs that you do across the, mm -hmm. the strings. What is that pattern and what finger pattern are you using? And um, gotcha. that seems to be like a real bass technique mm -hmm. that, that you and, and of course, Don uh, use. Right, yeah. So Don, I guess I got that. I probably learned that from watching this video of Don. You can find it on YouTube. It's one of their pilot Kroger programs. Kroger shows. Yeah. yeah, so they do, um, I wouldn't change you if I could. Okay. And he plays it different than he does on the record. And he does this second break uh, where he plays that that lick in there. I just sort of internalized it, uh, I guess, but. Uh, yeah, isolate that lick real quick. So yeah. It, you know. That would uh -huh. be the completion of it, which you don't always do. But uh, so it's in the, I don't know, so that second position, I don't know what you call those things, but. Um, yeah, F the chord, the second the D, D shape F chord. The D right? shape F chord. Yeah. There you go. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I sort of run up from the, the F on the fourth string, third fret. Or up high. I do those little cheats too. Uh -huh. <laughs> That fret's not there. I actually right. had two extra frets on this banjo at one time just for stuff like that, but I couldn't keep it held on with the double stick tape I had. So I just oh, never you put just it stuck a fingerboard. It, it wasn't like one of these Gnome Pikelny extended necks. It, right, it, right. It wasn't. It's almost like banjo dentures or something. I had a couple of them, but yeah, that's it right there. Oh, I've just, never seen that before. A friend of mine, he's a machine. That's not the one because I had something. But anyway, but it stuck just there like that. And I suppose this isn't great podcast content, but <laughs> but Jeremy has this uh, metal plate that he's sliding under the strings right where the neck meets the pot, and it's giving him a couple extra yeah. frets, which is, I've never seen that. That's yeah, so, that's I so had cool. A, I had the idea. <laughs> of all people, I got this idea from Roger Sprung. Uh -huh. You familiar with him? Yeah. He's a New England uh, banjo player. Yeah. I don't know what it was he had stuck on the... I used to see him every year at Galax at the Fiddler's Convention, and he had this... Uh, it, it was real gummy looking, but I don't know what he made it out of. If it was just, He probably made it out of J.B. Weld or something. <laughs> but he had it stuck there on his banjo head for the sec first and second string to give him a 23rd and 24th fret just on those. Wow. And I thought, wow, I could probably have my buddy Darren machine me out of, out of a piece of aluminum, a plate that I could stick on there. So that, that's what I did. I used to have it for a long time. I, actually, I think in 2019, I had it on there for a few shows. Till it fell off again. I can't believe I never thought. It just never occurred to me to do it. But it makes so much <laughs> sense when you when you see it. Yeah. <clears throat> Does that mess with the acoustic sound of it to have that? You know, it never really seemed to affect it to me. I mean, oh. you know, in bluegrass we damp the heads with our fingers anyway, mm. so it, it you know maybe adds a very slight amount to that. Yeah. But, and it's uh, so close to the edge that it's right. Yeah, that's right. cool. Another thing I, I really admired watching that live show is you seem to be one of the most adept players at playing actual solid, interesting backup banjo while you're singing lead. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, and I, I'm wondering if there's a specific way that you were able to develop that skill. For, for me, I guess um, I, I started trying to do that years ago, and, and I, I spent more time 
sort of honing it in and, and working on it more since we had to start doing stuff with high fidelity uh, with Kurt not being able to travel as mm-hmm. much. And it's like, well, Kurt and I, I mean, I kind of consider that we have similar uh, banjo styles and uh, that's why we're the ones that interchange. And Daniel, who's kind of our main mandolin player for the records and such, you know, we have we pull him him in to play guitar and I play the banjo. So Kurt just wails on the backup when we're doing stuff, when I'm uh, playing guitar. And I'm like, I've got to figure out how to fill that void so that we sound like the same band. Yeah. So we've sought really hard with High Fidelity to to sound the same regardless of who's there. And we feel like we're, we're doing pretty good with that. And, um, you know, I had always, always goes back to Don Reno and Troy yeah. Brammer for me. I'd always heard that Don was one of those people that uh, you could come up and talk to him and he would just, he was just playing wouldn't, and, wouldn't and, <laughs> and he could just play and talk, you know, Amazing. that always kind of amazed me. And I think probably because of that, I tried to start playing and, and singing um, on stage with other groups I played with. But there are specific things in High Fidelity. Um, we do Banjo Players Blues, which is one I brought in from Charlie Munro. And, you know, so there's some specific things that happen, like uh, there's a line in that song that goes, um, they'll say that's the last of Banjo Joe, no more you'll say, see of me. Well, I sang Banjo Jer just for fun. (laughs) And Kurt goes... Something like that. So uh, while I'm singing that line, so I was like, well, I've got to do that (laughs) when we're doing this on stage. So it's like, you'll say that's... uh, You'll say that's... You'll say that's the last of Banjo Jer, no more you see of me. You know, wow. something like that. Yeah, you're walking and but chewing gum here. That right there is like, <laughs> I had to work and work and work. And it's like, because I'm syncopating the singing and syncopating this differently. Yeah. And I still don't know if I'm actually singing it the same way I sing it when I play the guitar, but it's close enough. <laughs> right. And you're supposed to sing in tune, so there, uh, you're right. it takes like three or four brains to accomplish Yeah, so I don't even know if what I just sang was in tune just now. <laughs> hope it was. <laughs> so, so reps is really. Yes. It sounds. It sounds like the the key is just right. Get get both the singing and the playing into the muscle memory or, or definitely, something like that. especially for specific licks. And there's, I got a bag of licks that you know I can just kind of throw in wherever when I'm singing that I've just played them enough. They're sort of second nature, yeah. you know, and that that kind of works out for most of the. But then those specific things like that are <laughs> really hard. <laughs> 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 yeah, well, it, it, it's definitely noticeable uh, how how well you're doing I appreciate wh- while that. you're singing. That means really a lot. Impressive. Folks, we are in a golden age of online instrument instruction, and at the top of that world is Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation has streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, so you can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots music. Check out the courses they have, and this is just for banjo. You could get beginning or bluegrass banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward style banjo with Bruce Molsky, the banjo according to Danny Barnes, and contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wes Corbett. 
Each of those courses include high-quality video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And the best thing yet is you're going to get your first month free just by being a listener of this show. So go to pegheadnation.com and use promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout and claim your free month of the best instruction out there. And if you find yourself needing a banjo or accessories to get ready for those Peghead Nation courses, I highly recommend you check out Elderly Instruments, which is the world's most trusted source of new used and vintage stringed instruments, including banjos, guitars, violins, mandolins, ukuleles, all that stuff. They're going to have the best instruments you can find anywhere. And we're talking everything from the more affordable instruments for people starting out on up through the most highly sought after vintage instruments. Elderly Instruments has been family owned since 1972. And if you can't make it to their Lansing, Michigan showroom, you can see their full selection at elderly.com or give them a call at 517-372-7880 for some professional advice on all of your banjo and other stringed instrument needs. And you know what all these stringed instruments have in common? They all sound better with GHS Strings. GHS Strings is another sponsor of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, and I'm proud to say they have been made in Battle Creek, Michigan since 1974. And if you don't want to take my word for it, maybe you'll believe such people as J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, and Bela Fleck, just a few of the many, many users of GHS Strings. So, Go check them out, ghsstrings.com. They have a wide selection of gauged sets so that no matter what you're looking for, you'll be able to find something there. Let's talk a bit more about High Fidelity. First of all, congratulations on the multiple IBMA award nominations. Thank you. New Artist Song of the Year. And did I hear also Collaboration? Yeah, collaborative Oh, that's recording. cool. I, I, I guess I didn't notice that before. So what yeah. is three awards? And hopefully by the time this airs, you will be uh, multiple IBMA winning. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> We're praying for it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, so of course, one of the unique and noteworthy aspects of High Fidelity is the regular use of twin banjos, mm-hmm. which should immediately endear your band <laughs> into, into the hearts of my listeners. <laughs> I'm on my way back home. I'd like to hear how that came about and did it take any extra effort to convince your fellow banjo, or uh, not banjo members, band members, that this was an actual good idea to take to the stage and and integrate to the show? Well, it didn't really take much convincing, um, but I'll step back a little bit and say, you know, Kurt Stevenson and myself have been friends since 1999. We met at the Smithville Fiddler's Jamboree in Smithville, Tennessee, and uh, at that time, we were both kind of into Don Reno, and he was doing the Earl thing, too, and I followed Earl Scruggs some as well in my life. I mean, one of the first things I 
saw on television was this thing of Earl and Roy Husky Jr. and Jerry Douglas, Mark O'Connor and Marty Stewart and Bash Brother Oswald on American Music Shop. I think it was aired in 89. Amazing show. Transformative for me. Right. Um, say all that to say, I've always loved Earl Scruggs too. But um, so Kurt and I met at Smithville in 99 and we we really hit it off uh, immediately. And we started playing twin banjos then because we both <laughs> loved the Don Reno and Eddie Adcock sensational twin banjos album. So we started oh. trying to play those tunes that, that they recorded on that album, which if you haven't heard it, it's, it's a magnificent. I have not. No, I, I, I will definitely look it up. It's you gotta love banjo for it. <laughs> I'm, I'm the target market. <laughs> it's some of it's a little hairy, but their playing is amazing. Yeah. You know, they don't they're not always matching up. You know, but but it goes ticker 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 a lot, right. and it's great. <laughs> I just love it. And um, so um, so Kurt and I started doing that then. We always kind of wanted to have a band together, you know. And uh, Karina and I met uh, my wife, uh, Karina Rose Logston yeah. uh, Stevens. Uh, we Fiddler met for Fiddler High for Fidelity. High Fidelity, yes. Singer. Right. We met at Spigma um, in uh, February, I think on February 13th or 14th, depending on which side of the clock it was. Right, right. Uh, in 2009. And um, I had heard about her, and, you know, a friend of ours, had, a mutual friend had said, oh, she plays like Mac McGahey. Well, I didn't believe it. But uh, I met her, and I was like, Okay, I was wrong. Now I believe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I believe it. And um, so that night, Kurt was there. So Karina, myself, and Kurt had a jam for hours at Spigman. Yeah. It was, so it's kind of like the original nucleus of High Fidelity, yeah. you know, formed when I met Karina. Both well, of you on banjo? Of uh, some. Okay. We switched back and forth, and we probably did some twin banjo stuff too. I don't know. But Karina's dad is a banjo player. Uh-huh. Karina's first instrument was banjo. So... She loves banjo, and the more the merrier. Yeah. So when we had High Fidelity, when we got started with High Fidelity in 2019 at the Spigma Band Contest, it was a no-brainer that we would, you know, incorporate that eventually. We didn't do twin banjos, I don't think, at, at the original, you know, Spigma Band Contest. But I think probably the first show we did, we featured it, you know, and it's just kind of been a mainstay for us. And um, so, yeah, we all love it. It's kind of our thing, I guess. So I, I asked you, and I'm, I'm hoping you can, can humor me. I brought my banjo here. Yeah. And uh, I'm wondering if we can go through some sort of simple melody and, and have you take me through maybe like a step-by-step approach of how you write and arrange these twin banjo parts. Are sure. You, are you game for that? Yeah, that's great. Cool. Some people try to match every um, note in the roll. I've done that. Um, me and Brennan Ernst, he's a great banjo player, lives in Philadelphia. He's played with Carl Shiflett some down through the years. And he and I worked up a version of Five Foot Two, Eyes of Blue. And we we were snowed in in Rockwell, Maryland at Tom Minty's house. And it was like 24 inches of snow on the ground oh, no. or something. It was crazy. And uh, he's like, we got to work out this. So we worked it out in F and we matched every note. And it was fun. I enjoyed doing it, but it's pretty stale sounding, you know, when you when when we listen back to it. It's yeah. like, well, yeah, that was cool, but it didn't have a whole lot of life. <laughs> not, so, to men- not to mention you don't always have as much time as you do when you're uh, snowed, <laughs> snowed into in, the right. place for a day or two or however, however long that was. For sure. So all that to say, you know, 
I in in what we do with high fidelity. I mean, sometimes we try to match the roles. There's a few things we do that on, but in general, we feel that it's got maybe a little bit more life and pizzazz hmm. if you just try to sort of match the melody notes and get them in time together, and then. Now, do you do you usually take the higher parts or? I do. Okay. Yeah. And also, just out of curiosity, I notice you and Kurt, you both are on bow tie banjos, right? Mm-hmm. Do you find it helps to have banjos with similar tones, or is d- it maybe cool to, to change it up? Yeah, I do like to have banjos with similar tones. It wouldn't have to be two bow ties. We do that sure, mainly because sure. we're like a 50s, 60s. It's the aesthetic, yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of like the thing, you know. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I would generally like to have two banjos that sound similar just for a blend yeah you know because i you know if you had someone that whose banjo was set up kind of like say noam pakelny or something like that and then someone that has a banjo set up like ralph stanley's it almost sounds like two different instruments right you know um so i I do like like them to sound similar well well mine probably is going to be a bit like darker and bassier than yours, but we'll we'll just give it a try. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and that's all part of, you know, the sound and, and, and what we're doing with high fidelity too, you know, sort of those kind of punching, cutting type banjo tone, you know. Right. And it um and I think probably a good example for really what we're like what we're really going for with the twin banjos with high fidelity, unless we're doing like an instrumental or something, but like the songs. If you've heard Jim and Jesse's recordings of um, uh, My Empty Arms and um, Beautiful Moon of Kentucky. Don McCann and Alan Shelton playing banjos on that, and um, that's—I mean—they're—they're cracking. Okay. (laughs) And that's kind of what we're going for, you know. Yeah. Really cool. You tell me, how do we do this? Do I do I play you how I play it? That's what I. Yeah. That's what I would generally do is—is have you play it, and then I'll—I try to match it. Okay. So let's try it with uh, John Hardy. So I I guess I'll show you what I'm doing. Should be pretty, pretty straightforward. Okay. Yeah. Let's try it. Let, let's take it slow, and after sure. after it's under our fingers, we can ratchet it up. A Sounds bit. good. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. 
I got it at the end. (laughs) No, that's great. Maybe we can even give it another spin, but I wanted to pause at least to just, um, listeners heard what I'm doing, maybe play your part soloed so they can hear what, what you added to it. Okay. Yeah, so... that was how you played it yeah pretty pretty darn close so and what's your method for what is your method for coming up with those notes is that just a straight thirds basically basically so yes uh thirds and fourths depending on the you know what the the first note is above the chord yeah. yeah in the chord um yeah so it's basically like the stock tenor part that someone would sing basically is what I do so yeah I'm just hunting for those notes and if you're going I try to do something that would work for that so you know I'm and I'm getting three G notes right but you might go I don't know that might be another way you get a you know another harmony note in there and yeah so when you're there I'm just Holding the same position up here to get the seventh note and the two note. Yeah, that works out pretty nicely. Yeah. Always like that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Probably so. that one probably gets a lot of use. Yeah, I expect so. <laughs> well, let, let's take it another few couple rounds or something. And, okay. I don't know. Maybe we'll even play around with it a little bit. See, <laughs> see what happens. Cool. Just a touch faster, maybe. All right, good deal. One, two,
Oh, very cool. Thank you for indulging me on that. That's, yes, sir. That was fun. And I apologize for not being too warmed up yet, but I'll, I'll get there. Yeah, I apologize too. <laughs> the sticky day makes it tough. Yeah, yeah. That's what we get for these outdoor interviews. Let's talk about your, your brand new album, which isn't even out yet. So I, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to, to hear it, but I, I got a copy and I'm looking forward to it. But it's, it's titled How I Hear It. And I find that to be an interesting title because it suggests that you might hear things in your own personal way. So uh, I'm wondering, what does that title mean to you? And do you actually think the way that you hear things is different than the way other people might? I think the way that any person hears something musically, meaning what they play is what they hear in their head, basically, it all stems from uh, their influences and the music they've uh, been surrounded with or that they've heard mm-hmm. or, or, or allowed themselves to hear or, or whatever. So yeah. for me, um, it kind of goes back to, um, you know, I've always been into this music from the 50s and early 60s and, and before, you know, as far as bluegrass music goes, really 50s and early 60s. But for me, I've found that if you really want to dig in and and understand what that generation of musicians uh, did and why they they played the things that they played is to go back and listen to the music that they were listening to when they were growing up. And right. those, those influences will come through that way. Like, you know, if you want to play fiddle like Paul Warren, mm-hmm. don't just listen to Paul Warren. You've got to listen to Fiddlin' Arthur Smith. Okay. You know, that's where Paul's stuff comes from, you know. And so, uh, you know, for someone like Don Reno... You need to be listening to Snuffy Jenkins. Uh, you need to hear the people that that influenced Snuffy Jenkins, you know. And Don, of course, heard these people too. Charlie Poole is is a huge one, you know. He was a three finger banjo player in the 1920s. His biggest selling record was a hit in 1926, "Don't Let Your Deal Go Down." Oh, sold 109 thousand records. I mean, that's when a hit was wow. selling 20 thousand, you know, or something wow. like that. And uh, so, so that was massive. You know, there's a story that Don Reno talks about as a kid, you know, hearing songs like Can I Sleep in Your Barn Tonight, Mister? Well, that was Charlie, that was, a, I think it's the flip side to Don't Let Your Deal Go Down. It was one of the first four that Charlie Poole recorded. So, yeah, yeah. these guys were hearing that stuff. And um, a friend of mine named Kenny Rohr is a record collector in a home, my hometown of Danville, Virginia. And uh, Kenny really kind of, schooled me on a lot of that pre-war country music and those banjo players and the fiddle players and all that stuff. So I really got interested oh, in all of that kind yeah, of music. And so cool. So, I mean, that's really all I listened to was, was pre-war country, the, the 20s, 30s, and early 40s, and, and bluegrass music um, from the, the 50s and early 60s. I, kinda, I leave out the 40s because there wasn't a lot of... Um, I mean, the, the main bluegrass recordings that you have in the 40s is Bill Monroe's band, you know. Right. And, uh, and yes, I listened to those recordings. I just never completely Im- immersed myself in them. It wasn't quite you know? your thing. Right. And um, so, um, so, yeah, all of that kind of, it's like what goes in comes out. Yeah. And I find that how I hear the music that I play comes from all of that, and I find that I have constraints unintentionally uh, that are from that generation sort of or that that's the intention of it anyway is 
to be something fresh and new that's out here, but but is influenced by all this older stuff and kind of not influenced by the stuff in the middle. Yeah. Um, you know, and you'll hear sense. you'll hear people play like a Don Reno tune and they'll throw in a licks or roll patterns that, that might come from uh, Trishka or mm-hmm. or um, J.D. Crow. You know, you hear just different different things mixed in. It's great. It's wonderful. That's how that person hears it. But I always seek to be pure in what I do, not to be an elitist or anything like that. It's just what I love, you know. Yeah. And that's kind of where my heart is and, and what I've always striven for, I guess, in life. So that's how I hear it. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's a really cool explanation. So you view this album as just your statement about yeah. these are my influences and this is how it has filtered through me to, to present to you, the listener. And, and, and it goes even maybe a little bit deeper into the people that I chose as well. Uh-huh. Um, uh, for how they play and, and how I feel that, that what they just naturally do kind of fits in with the mold. Mm-hmm. Um, and also pulling in guest artists that are directly connected to those eras and those people. Oh, interesting. Um, so I pulled in Ronnie Reno. I asked Ronnie if he would be up for, for doing a song with me. Yeah. And um, so I had him come in and play mandolin on uh, Since Wedding Bells Have Rung. It's a a song that he cut with his dad uh, for Monument Records in 1966. Great song. So I had Ronnie sing lead. Usually the guest artist uh, sings the harmony to the the man whose name's on the record, you know, the person whose name's on the record. And, um, but no, I wanted Ronnie to sing lead. I wanted to sing tenor to him. So I'm sort of like in his dad's position, you know. He puts me there, I'm playing banjo and singing tenor. Since wedding bells have rung, I hope you're happy. Keep sacred all your precious vows, I pray. Don't break his heart as you broke mine, my darling. In closing, dear, here's all I have to say. Since wedding bells have rung, my life seems empty. I still can't realize you wed another Since wedding bells have rung my dear goodbye Though, I mean, on the record, his dad actually... um, sang the lead and Ronnie sang tenor but our vocal ranges are such that it was better for him to sing lead now and me tenor Okay, so that's what we did and, and I got to play uh, Don Wayne loaned me uh, Nelly uh, Don's banjo yeah, famous banjo and um, so I got to play that on there and uh, Marty Stewart loaned me Don's guitar he in recent years purchased uh, Don's Herringbone and I've known Marty through association with the gospel group I used to play with, the Chuck Wagon Gang. Uh-huh. Marty's been a great friend. And uh, so, and then Ronnie, I uh, told him, I said, would you bring your mandolin, the one that your dad bought you, and uh, and play it on the record as well? And while we were in the studio, Ronnie said, you know, Dad loved that guitar. And he said, every record he made, he yeah, every record he made 
whoever was playing guitar, he made them play that yeah, guitar. That, so that's the only get, guitar on any of, of Don's Yes, his stuff, his, his personal stuff. Yeah, and the stuff with, with Red Smiley, um, it's, you know, Red's playing, Red's, yeah. it's, he's playing his guitar, but Bill Harrell played Don's guitar. <laughs> that's you know? cool. And, and he said, that's that's the man that beat it up was Bill Harrell. Okay. <laughs> he put all the all the, the beat up marks on it, all but the uh, yeah, all the dings and everything. But yeah, so that song for me is really kind of like my little pet for the album because I got to pull in all of these influences and the actual physical objects that are connected to that, you know, for, for that song. Right. And I use those instruments on other songs too. Sockeye, I'm playing... Uh, Nelly on oh, that yeah. as well, and oh, that's such a cool tune. Yeah, yeah and um, uh, one one or two others I'm playing, and Don's guitars on a few other cuts too. Could I knock on your door? My current single, and I'm playing it on there, and uh, and that's a, ben, a Benny Martin connection. I had Hunter Berry play fiddle on that because uh, I always like Benny stuff, and sort of you know he was sort of a student of of Benny, and um, I played Don's guitar on that because I knew Benny played that guitar when they were playing, when Don and Benny were playing together, and I sort of played in Benny's style on it. So I've just this is a really pull all these little little things together on everything, you wow. know. Yeah, so every, that's a lot deeper than I expected. <laughs> every song on the <laughs> album is like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. No, that's great. It makes yeah. me already excited to listen so. to it. That's cool. I mean, I know I know you've played with a lot of groups, um, including Jesse McReynolds. I was surprised to hear that you played with Ray Stevens. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a pretty unexpected kind of resume item, right? For, for someone in, in in your position. So, talk about. I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear the <clears throat> the same answer goes for uh, Jesse, of course. But mm-hmm. what did you learn from performing with Ray? What type of qualities does he have that you were able to pick up on? So. Um, I got that gig through Ben Surratt, uh, Missy Rain's husband. Ben's great. He's a great friend, Virginia boy, too. And um, so he he is Ray Stevens' engineer. Okay. So um, Ned Lebrecki couldn't do some of the, the, show, the, the TV shows that they were doing. Ned has played with Ray a good bit. Okay. And um, so they, I got in on it, and I got to do two seasons of Ray Stevens' Nashville, the television show. And, uh, yeah, so that's a different world for me, uh, sort of coming into that. I played guitar and banjo. So the sort of the comedy songs, he usually has just like a little rolling banjo in there or something, or uh, his version of Misty, the banjo actually kicks it off, you know. But it was a stretch for me because I'm thrust into this, you know, this full-out Nashville scene with these jazz guys, basically. I mean, I understand that stuff, but I'm not like the fastest letter chart reader yeah, with yeah. all the the jazz symbols and all that stuff the right. little triangles and all that you know, yeah. you know so um a lot of numbers after yes. the after the chord yes exactly <laughs> so you know i had to do some uh, woodshedding all that just for the for the guitar work primarily because i i'm just kind of a you know old time bluegrass open chord yeah player but i learned a lot you know, I mean, I, I know those chords. I understand them. Reading them on the fly is not uh, the, the easiest thing for me. And also knowing the normal chord shapes for what those are, you know. Yeah. I, I feel really foolish that I'm completely unaware of the the banjo on, on Ray. Because I, I used to listen to some Ray Stevens when I was a kid. Yeah. And I guess that was just before I was aware enough to 
to know that yeah, it was full so, of banjo. Music. Yeah, Bobby Thompson is playing on on most of that stuff. Oh, can't, yeah, can't believe I didn't know that. Oh yeah, it's un- unbelievable. <laughs> like I think um, the original cut of uh, the streak. I think Bobby Thompson is oh. the banjo player on that. How cool! And he's doing his. It's like slow melodic, you know, uh, type of thing. Well, now that I know that, that's that's probably some of the earliest banjo I've heard without even there you remembering go. it yeah. specifically. Yeah, when yeah. I was a kid listening to those comedy albums. Yeah. That's really yeah, cool. That's great. Let's talk about your gear. To start with the main banjo that you play. What What is this? And take us through all the bridges and tail pieces and heads and yeah. picks and just tell us everything about what you use. Yeah, so um, this is a 63 RB250, Gibson RB250. So all this stuff kind of goes back to Troy Brammer for me. Uh, that I mentioned seeing him when I was a kid. And he was pulling the strings and all that stuff. Uh, he plays a 64, I think it's a 64 RB250, mm. according to the serial number uh, anyway. Okay. So I always wanted one. I saw that one. I played. I got to know him and just loved his banjo. I'm like, I got to find me a bow tie. I want yeah. a bow tie, you know. So a friend of mine, Reed Martin in... Uh, Kevin John Maryland, he called me one day and he said, I think I found you a bow tie. It's in Hagerstown. So uh, I went up there and the guy, he was from California and he had um, moved there, whatever, and had it. And he played claw hammer. And he said, I really just want, I want an open back banjo. Yeah. I'm like, that's great. I got an amazing deal on it, like 1500 bucks. So you can't find them for that anymore. Oh, now, wow. You yeah. Know, that wasn't, yeah, when would this have been? Uh, it, was, it wasn't terribly long ago. 2007 is when I bought oh, it. Yeah, that's still a, still yeah, a good price. Yeah, it's still a very good good deal. You could find them for that price then. Uh, but anyway, so it's like mint condition when I got it. It was uh-huh. basically un, unplayed. And uh, so um, it still looks it's, great. It's my primary instrument. It's the one I play all the time. I have others. I, I have a 19. 30 uh, Vegavox number one that I had a just a, a cheap neck that was on a tuba phone at some point and I sanded off the little part of the heel that comes off the back of this I don't know what they call the the bands that go around on a Vega but uh, the Vox doesn't have that so I had to shave that part off stuck that neck on there and then my friend Russ Carson his dad's a master engraver. Yeah. And at some point, uh, when I'd had that neck on a tuba phone, I was hanging out at their campsite and Glenn, Glenn Carson, he, uh, I was gone. I left the banjo sitting there, uh, with that neck on it, this tuba phone at the time. And I picked it up. I came back to the campsite, picked it up and I looked down and the bottom inlay was engraved. I said, what? What? <laughs> Well, Glenn, you know, he carries his tools with him everywhere he goes. And this thing was, I mean, it was a pitiful neck. Someone had engraved it with a Dremel. You know, it had these fat lines in the inlays yeah. and stuff. And uh, he made chicken salad. So, <laughs> so the that's, bottom, his, that's his way of pranking people? Yeah, is right, to en- right. engrave their instruments yes. when they're not... <laughs> Right. So he engraved it, inlay and blacked it. And I, I got back, I looked at it and thought, it looked amazing. I just couldn't believe it. And then he realized what he had done is he did one, he had to do the whole thing. Oh. <laughs> so over the next week or so, he took it with him and worked, he engraved it. So I have that neck on my, my Vegavox now. And it's it's great. It basically makes it a Vega Box number two. I'm playing it on a few songs on the album as well. Is that the other one in the photo? It is. Okay, I wondered yes. what that was. Yeah. Right. Um, and that influence comes from Troy Brammer as well. He has a Vega Vox and I always loved the sound of it. You know, I play Gibson guitars because of Troy Brammer too. 
And um, anyway, I'm just talking about instruments. You wanted to, me to talk a little bit about uh, yeah, about set the up and stuff like that. Sure, or? yeah. Anything that you view as just take us through all the all the specs of what you play, and especially if there's something that you are really sold on or you think is important. To... Yeah. So I love the sounds of, of the bow ties, and I don't really know why this is, but it seems like they can have sort of a nasally quality in a way, and I don't really hear that until I compare it to a a pre-war flathead, but, um, but there's a quality with the bow tie that I like. I don't know how to describe it, except it kind of closes in on some of this openness. And pre-wars have a lot of this really open, dry sound, and I love it, and it works. It's excellent. You know, it's, it's the sound that everyone wants, and I love it too. And maybe I just, maybe I'm, I like the bow ties because I can't afford the pre-wars i don't yeah, know that's kind of a lucky i don't know preference. But... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe that's what it is because i still want one i still want a pre-war flathead yeah. you know but uh i do find that especially when it comes to the single string stuff and all i want sort of this closed sound just to, like almost muted in a way but not and i don't really know how to describe it but yeah, the bow tie focused kind of a yeah tighter yes tighter and, and the bow tie has that but on top of that, I generally tighten my heads on the banjo around to around B flat. I don't know what that is in inch pounds or whatever, but you know. But that's comparatively, at least, it, that's a pretty tight. It that, is. That's yeah, yeah, a bit tighter than probably most people. Right. Most people are going to be at G sharp or or, or less. You know, mm. especially people that um, you know are playing like. Norm Pakelny and Bela Fleck and that sort of thing, it's going to be looser than that and a really heavy bridge. And um, I used to be a real proponent of paper-thin bridges, and I got away from that. You talk about nasal, you get real right, right, right. nasal when you get that going <laughs> and cuts you with a knife, you know. But um, I, I've gotten away from that, but it's still not a fat, fat bridge, but it's just kind of a... I just like a Grover bridge. Side, yeah. yeah, just, just a Grover. Just a simple Grover, and this mm -hmm. is probably a Chinese version of that. In fact, it's. I think the one on here now has got the the mock uh, Snuffy Smith slot in it, and I didn't want that, so I flipped it backwards. Yeah, it looks. <laughs> but with the Grovers, it doesn't matter because they're symmetrical, right? Right. Okay. Well, and I, this one may have leaned back. I can't remember. Uh, but if it did, I sanded that off. Okay. So, <laughs> that's, so that's kind of how I do, you see. Um, and for the bow ties, I love a Kirshner tailpiece. You mm. got more control, uh, and it's a heavy tailpiece. Prestos are great if you want something that's just going to be right when you stick it on there. Uh, that's uh, Prestos are wonderful. Uh, if you want to have a little more control, I do like a Kirshner. And... Uh, Troy Brammer had a cursion on his bow tie. Yeah, I think we're <laughs> noticing a pattern here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so that was kind of where all that started with me. It's like, I want, I want one just like Troy's. I want one just like Troy's. But, and it's just kind of become the thing for me now. And it's not like I do it because he did or whatever. I've just, I, maybe I got used to the tone or whatever, but I do like it and it's worked really well yeah, cool. for me. How about... Uh, Picks or strings? What? What? Yeah. What's all that? Oh, I want to say a word about this head too. Oh, please do. So, this head is—they uh, call it a white suede Remo. I've always been a five-star guy, vintage five stars. I've mm -hmm. uh, not the new ones. The ones you buy now are 
not really good. They're extremely thick and sort of gummy in a way when yeah, you start right. wearing, wearing on them. But uh, so I love vintage five stars, the one where the five star almost touches the the, the rim, you know, of the okay. head, and because they're thinner. And I think Ludwig's new heads are like the old five stars. Are they? I'm not a hundred percent sure, but All I right. think that's right. And there's some new head out there, and somebody told me it was a Ludwig. So they're basically old five stars. So they're excellent too. Uh, but this head, a friend of mine, and I think he's in Boston or somewhere. I met him in Boston anyway. Mark um, Harovitz told me about this white suede Remo. Mm-hmm. I was up at the Joe Val Festival, and he had this bow tie. Tony Trishka was there, and I played on the banjo a little bit, and he handed it to Tony, and Tony was like, wow, man, this is this is a good one. And <clears throat> he says, you got to have a white suede Remo on it. Well, they don't really market them that much. I don't know if they're for drums or what, but it's very slightly thicker. I think it's basically a white Renaissance head. Okay. So... I had the special order, and it was like 45 bucks. Um, it stretches and stretches and stretches, but when it settles in, it's excellent. And it has this mid-range that I've not really been able to get with anything else. Mm-hmm. I really like it. So that's that's what that is. Um, so if your theory is right that it's, it's basically a, a renaissance with a different coating, I mean, the whole point of those is to give more of a skinhead kind of right. vibe. Mm-hmm. And that's probably what a lot of those guys yes. in the 50s would, would undoubtedly yeah. have been using. So right. That makes, right. that makes a lot of sense. I've never tried a skinhead on this banjo. I've tried it on several of my other banjos, and I don't know if I just don't have a good skinhead or what, but it, not, it never worked that good for me. Right. But, man, this is, this is excellent here. Um, well, I'll say a word first. My favorite picks, probably because I got used to them when I was a teenager, um, are Kaiser Old Styles. That's not what these are, but um, they're magnificent. In fact, uh, Gabe Hirschfeld, he had a set. I'd lost my favorite set, and I was telling Gabe about that, and he said, uh, he said, I think I got a set I'll send you, and he did. He sent me a set, and then since then, um, Josh Ulbrich, the guy that's running the station in, he gave me two or three sets. I'm like, oh, cool. It's oh, great. I've got all these Kaiser Old Styles. And in the meantime of all this, <clears throat> a friend, older friend of mine, a guy named Jimmy Hypes, contacted me back in January. Jimmy Hypes is a pick maker. He made picks for Don Reno on down through the years. He's, he was kind of the first stainless steel pick maker. And he was from Narrows, Virginia, and he's made thousands of picks since probably the 60s. And uh, he called me, he lives in, uh, had, was living in Myrtle Beach the, all the time I knew him. My fin, friend, uh, Ken Landreth, got me in touch with him. And, um, and I interviewed him about Don Reno and that sort of thing. We kind of hit it off, became friends, and I'd go see him anytime I was in the Myrtle Beach area. Well, he called me out of the blue in January this year. And uh, he says, Jeremy, I need you to come to Myrtle Beach. My, my kids are moving me into assistant living. I want to give you all my pick-making stuff. <laughs> That's kind of how he is. He says what he says, and he's, he's done. I'm like, crap, I got to drive to Myrtle Beach? I don't have time. <laughs> what I'm am I, what am I going to do with hours. a bunch of pick-making equipment? <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, anyway, I, I went down there, and uh, he's one of these guys that just kind of – he made picks out of wire snips and just – raw material i mean he wasn't stamping or anything he's making them all by hand and i didn't realize that and so he he handed me his stuff and it was like this much stuff i'm like 
I, I drove you to Myrtle Beach for this. <laughs> <laughs> I could have gone to Lowe's. <laughs> right. <laughs> but his his big thing is he gave me, he made this, um, he's a machinist, and he made this thing that he actually cups the blades with. And um, and it's just bars that, that make arch, and they're welded into this plate, basically. And he's got small ones, big ones, and so you can get deeper cups or wider, you know, not as deep and that sort of thing. So the picks... So is that what these are? That's what these are. They're picks huh. I made. Um, they're rough as a cob. It's the first set I made, but I've been using them, and I, I still like them. But I couldn't find his patterns yet. I've got a set of his picks, and I'm going to have to probably flatten them out. He had tons of patterns, but none of the main patterns that he used are like the ones that he would have made for Don Reno. But I do have a couple of those sets. Anyway, so he had some flattened out pre-war nationals. Okay. And um, so I, I just I traced him out on the stainless steel material he had and um, cut the holes except for those right there in the bend because yeah. if you've used the old nationals, you know that they break in between the hole and the edge. Mm-hmm. But, but right here or right here where the pick bends around your finger from the blade. So these are pre-war national patterns. I say pre-war. I don't know if it's pre-war non-USA nationals, the ones that just have the patent number on them, not the patent pending. That's the real old ones. But um, So the picks I'm using are ones I made, and I've, I like them pretty good. And that's only the first set? Hopefully yeah, this just is, I've get better made, from here. Yeah, I've made four or five sets, I guess, and gave them to friends, but I still can't quite get the hang of that of using them wire snips because you have to use left-handed snips to get this side right oh. here. And I inevitably... I don't know if the snips I, that he gave me aren't up to par or whatever, but I probably need to buy some other ones because uh, I keep I keep cutting into the pick right right here. <laughs> Thanks. So uh, right there on the edge. But then anyway, I've made some that were good, but these <laughs> set work fine for me, so I'm, they're they're doing good. My thumb pick is the old uh, El Cheapo Blue Herco. Blue Herco. All right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, have to hunt hunt through about a hundred of these to find the ones that actually fit my thumb tight enough because they usually Oh, they're just, different. Yeah, they are. I don't know what it is. I could probably melt them in the oven and tighten them up or something, but I just try to find the ones that are a little bit Might tighter. Well. Right. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> yeah. I, I did not get to... Uh, talking microphones with you I, oh yeah I, I made you stop talking about microphones before we pressed record because I, I wanted to to hear all about it so definitely let me know if you have a preferred uh stage microphone or other stage gear and then uh, same question regarding studio microphones yeah so I don't have much preference on stage <clears throat> I find with stage the simpler the better uh dynamic mics like a 57 or, or something mm. is fine uh for the banjo it's mainly about the placement I've done mic shootouts where you put the mic in different places and all that sort of thing. And my ear must agree with Don Reno's. He said, you put it right here. And, and describe where right here Sorry, is. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> For all of those who aren't sitting here with, with Keith and I, <laughs> uh, basically uh, the diaphragm of the mic pointed where the neck meets the pot assembly over the strings. At that's at that but spot. Would so. you say, and just to focus in a little more, would you say 
roughly the middle of the strings or more toward that high D first string? Uh, I go I go more towards the middle, but of course, I mean, you're going to move around. That's going to vary anyway. some, you know. And and you know, if, when you're on stage, if I'm on stage, I probably put it three inches away from it or something, you wow. know. And, if okay. I, and um, yeah, I mean, that's going to vary because I, I move around a lot anyway uh-huh. when I'm playing. So, but that's kind of the center point. I use that placement also in the studio, but I find that the best microphone, all around microphone anyway, for studio um, recording for me is an RCA 77. Right. I don't have much experience with a 44. They may be better. I don't know. But the 77, man, it just, it really does what the banjo needs. Yeah. At least how I have mine set up. It works really good for that. So, um, is that what we'll hear on your new yeah, record? Yeah. So, sort of. Um, I think the only song that you're only hearing the 77 on is Lady Hamilton. Okay. But, um, and I and I don't, that's just because of I don't know maybe I was in a different spot or something. But what we did uh, for this record is we we double my actually we had three mics. I think we threw out the the other one. We had a like a little pencil condenser. I don't think we used that one. But uh, they had a large diaphragm mic tech uh, CV three. I think it is. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty. It's about a five thousand dollar microphone. Yeah. So we used that. And the 77, like with the diaphragms, it's close to the center of the strings where the neck meets the pot assembly. Okay. With about, what is that, 14 inches distance maybe from the from the mics. And the signals were just blended yes. to get a good, yep. nice combination of the two. What I did, I actually, um, I edited, I did the editing and uh, such on, on my, yes, we do editing. It's not all... there's some editing that happened so um in that process i got all the tones like i wanted before we did the the total full mixing so it varied from song to song based on which banjos i was playing i just get i guess maybe if i had moved a certain way so i blended them you know up and down depending on what i was needing Uh, i found that the bow tie liked the 77 more and the Mm -hmm. vegavox liked the mic tech more interesting um and i think don's banjo nelly liked the mic tech a little bit more too which i found found very interesting because don was a strong proponent of the ribbon mic i don't know if it was a bk5 or a 77 or, or that that he used in the studio but um i know there's a story that when they got the telefunken mics in at king they put it on his banjo and <clears throat> they went and listened to the first take or whatever they did. And, and Don said his banjo sounded like a damn tin can. Oh. So I can understand that, you know, because uh, it was probably a 47, you know, yeah. <laughs> some <laughs> $10,000 microphone today. Right. But it's understandable. But my experience is, is that his banjo seemed to sound better with the, with the condenser, you know. Oh, interesting. So, uh, but I still, the 77's in there, you know, it's mixed in there to get some of the growl or whatever, you know. That some ribbon of the warm, quality. The, yeah. yeah, the warm ribbon quality. Oh, I love them too, yeah. Yeah, it's it's great. I think Cushman uses a 77 as I well. I think you're right. And uh, yeah, they're, they're a great, they're a great banjo mic. It's sort of my go-to. If I had to have one mic, that's the one. Yeah, know? yeah, hard to go wrong there. Yeah. I don't even remember what you were saying about it. You mentioned something about the, the AKG C3000 was, oh, yeah. was something that you were digging lately. Was that just for more of like home studio projects? That yes. You, okay. So um, 
that mic, uh, the black one with the green band around it. They made uh-huh. them in the '90s, and they're you can find them on eBay if you if you look, you know, long enough. They they show up and they're pretty cheap. And um, I bought up about four of those, and I but I do I use them for home studio recording on and banjo uh, or everything. Um, no, kind, are I, they all purpose? Mics? I have a '77. Um, okay, so. I, had the opportunity to buy one a few years ago, and I thought that's probably the banjo mic, so I probably need to have one yeah. myself. So I do have a seventy-seven, but yeah, the the C three thousand is just a good all-around microphone. You know, mm-hmm. use it on different things, vocals and and whatever. I'm actually singing on a C three thousand on the harmony parts with um, Ronnie Reno on. Okay. Um, since wedding bells have rung, yeah. Yeah, really cool. Well, I don't know if there's anything else that you feel like we didn't cover that you'd want to say. Obviously, I'll give you the floor to tell people about how to find your stuff online. You have that new website that I was able to check out. Yes. Go ahead and give everyone the, the information they need. Yeah, so if you want to find out more about me, www.jeremystevensmusic.com. That's Jeremy, then Stevens with a P-H, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S, music at... Um, .com, rather. The email is jeremystevensmusic at gmail.com. Yeah. <laughs> I've said that so long, and I've got to have, I have to Still leave with the PH, all. though. Yeah, still with the PH, of course. And, uh, of course, I'm a member of High Fidelity, highfidelitybluegrass.com. Find us there, too. You can buy my record, Jeremy Stevens' How I Hear It, on Rebel Records at um, my website. Uh, just click on Shop at jeremystevensmusic.com. Wonderful. Thanks again, Jeremy. It's great hearing all of your... Banjo Insights. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me on here, Keith. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. You heard some sound clips in this episode, and in order, they were Sockeye, performed by Jeremy Stevens, the Carroll County Blues by the Brammer Brothers and the Virginia Partners, the Southbound Train, performed by High Fidelity, My Empty Arms by Jim and Jesse, and Since Wedding Bells Have Rung by Jeremy Stevens. Thank you once again to today's Patreon supporter of the show. That's Greg Porubon. Go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to help support the show yourself. Don't forget the VIP lounge meeting. That's tomorrow, October 26th at 9 p.m. Eastern. And contact the show, pickfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. And that's going to do it for me. I'll see you all next time. Sorry, I ramble. I, I everything from me. Everything from me is like ask this question. Well, I have to go back here. To, and <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Some people could just answer the question, but for me, it's like this. Everything is a big long thing. So.